teach us and that by your spirit you would take us to level ground, to safety. We confess that in us there is darkness, but with you there is light. And so lighten our path, O God. We ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. What exactly do you do with an adversary? What do you do when a person tarnishes your reputation at every turn? What do you do when a person disparages your work? What do you do when someone attempts to torpedo or is actually successful at torpedoing your success? What do you do with betrayal and bitterness that refuses to be addressed? After you've done everything in your power to seek peace and to pursue it, how do you handle someone who simply refuses to make that peace? This is not a common subject in modern sermons. But the Bible, especially in the Psalms, has a great deal to say about what it means to deal with these moments in life where we have an adversary or we have a, someone who we would classify as an enemy. And friends, when we are honest, we can acknowledge that life in a sin-stained and broken world, a world that's fractured, intertwines us with those who do not seek our best interest, who do not have our best interest at heart and for various reasons have become adversaries. They can jeopardize our career. They can jeopardize our reputation. They can jeopardize our friendships. And these conflicts can grow so sharp in our experience of them that they can even jeopardize our health. It's all real. And when speaking about the anatomy of the soul, if we were to be honest to that topic, it's critical for us to ask and answer the simple question, how do you handle an adversary? How do you deal with someone who has become an enemy? And so this morning, as we walk through Psalm 143, we'll see five things of God's direction about dealing with such circumstances. First, as we follow in verses 1 and 2, is that we begin by acknowledging our predicament. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. David's prayer begins in an odd manner. It's a prayer in which he's in the middle of distress and trouble. And so he calls upon God and he calls upon the faithful God who is also the righteous God in verse 1. But then he turns in verse 2. And you'll note that he calls upon the faithful and the righteous God and yet he also exclaims that he and no one else is actually righteous before God. He calls on the righteous God who's just in his character and who always keeps his promises. 
And he calls on that righteous God to deliver an unrighteous and an unjust and an unfaithful person. And friends, it's critical for us to recognize this. That at the head of this prayer in which there's adversity, in which there's deep trouble, in which there's personal distress, that David begins by recognizing that he has no claim on God in and of himself. That he has no righteousness with which he can leverage God to say, you have to act on my behalf. That he doesn't begin his prayer by saying, I've done everything right. Therefore, serve me and defend me. No, where David begins his prayer is in his own culpability. He recognizes his own participation in a sin-stained and broken world. That he is part of the sinful equation. And he recognizes his need for God's mercy. And friends, this is where he begins in the midst of all the adversity and all of the conflict is in this humility before God, recognizing that God is the one who exalts the humble and he also humbles those who are exalted. And for us who look to Jesus, this is where the prayer of adversity begins. We look to him recognizing that he alone is the one who gives us right standing before God. That none is righteous. And the Apostle Paul actually quotes Psalm 143 in the series of of quotations in Romans chapter 3. That none of us are free from guilt. That all are condemned. That our problem is not just what we have done, but our problem is who we are. And so we must cry out, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one is righteous before you. And so friends, as we call on the righteous God to defend us, to act on our behalf, we begin by acknowledging our own need for mercy, our own need for forgiveness, our own need for Jesus to be the one who stands in our place and justifies us before God. And so we acknowledge our predicament. Now second, as we move into verses three and four, we also see that we name our trouble. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. Now, it is the temptation of some for many different reasons simply to avoid the topic of adversaries and enemies. Some would say, well, who am I to judge? If we're all sinful, then how can I actually call someone an adversary or an enemy? It's important to point out that the Bible does affirm that none of us are righteous and that all are sinners before God. But this doesn't cause David to ignore the sinful actions of others, especially those malicious ones that were seeking to undermine his life. No, but rather, David in his example actually frees us to name our troubles before God, to bring those to the Lord himself. 
He says, for the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Graphic, descriptive words in which he's putting his trouble before God. And friends, in the grip of adversity, it's essential to be able to name our adversity to God. He welcomes you to speak of that trouble. He welcomes you to speak of the pain that it causes. And it's in naming this adversity that we receive one of the greatest gifts in the midst of all suffering and difficulty. And that's just simply the gift of validation. That as we name our trouble to God, God affirms that he knows the wrong. God affirms that he sees the wrong. God affirms that he cares for you. And friends, this is the gift of being able to bring and name our struggles and our, uh, our troubled circumstances and all that is around that, bringing that to God. Several years ago, I was in conversation with a young minister who was working on a large staff at a Presbyterian church. He was junior in the system, and his immediate boss, the executive pastor, had fallen into an addiction. It was unknown, but he was addicted to opioids. It was in the midst of that that life on the staff became incredibly chaotic in a very well-mannered and well-groomed church. And so promptly, what proceeded to happen was a cover-up of all that was distasteful. It was put under a hush. No one was allowed to talk about it. And for this young minister, he grew incredibly bitter and angry. He moved on, found new work. And it was in the midst of that that he was speaking to one of his other mentors and friends. And his mentor turned to him and said, well, now that you've moved on and you've seen that every place is just broken, have you gotten over it? I asked him how he responded to that. And he said he didn't know if he would ever speak to the man again. He was so bitter. He was so angry. And what he was describing was the invalidation. That all that had happened, all that had been said, all that had been covered up, the lies even that had been told, that it was all negated, it was nullified, it was like it didn't matter. Now do you see that everything's just broken? And friends, this is what a human can do to another, but this is what God will never do to you. When you come to him in the midst of trouble, when you come to him in the midst of the adversity, when you come to him in the midst of the injustice, and you name that to him, he sees and he knows that he cares, that you are his own. And so we name our trouble to him. As we work through the psalm into verses 5 and 6, we see that we're also to recall God's works and God's ways with us. It's in times of difficulty and trouble where we especially need to step outside of our own circumstances. And this is what is often impossible for us in the midst of trouble. 
that we find it just at that moment that we're so consumed by our circumstances, so consumed by the wrong of our adversaries that we struggle to actually step outside. But we see where David takes us in verse 5 and, and, and in verse 6. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And this is what we too must do. In the midst of adversity is that we have to get our focus and our preoccupation simply off of what's happening in the moment. That we need to consider God's works, what he has done on our behalf in the past. We need to look at God's works, especially in Jesus, and what he has done to deliver us from sin and what he promises to do. Because in looking at God's works, that's where we understand his way with us. We understand how God is disposed toward us. And that he's the same God today as he was yesterday. And he will be the same God tomorrow. That he doesn't waver in his way with us. That we need to consider God's works in his covenant. And all that he is and how his character reflects that covenant. Who he is in his promise. This God is reliable. This God is trustworthy. This God is faithful. This God is true. And he's the God who will come to our aid. And so David steps out of his circumstances, recalling all of what God has done and all of who God has revealed himself to be in his son Jesus. And we are welcomed to remember and to reflect and to exercise that memory, not simply as a historical exercise, but to bolster and to undergird our trust in this living God is to take us to the conclusion of where Paul draws us in Romans 8 and verse 32 that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also in him freely give us all things? Friends, this is the point of the remembrance of who God is and his works and ways on our behalf. That if he's given Jesus for us, If he's not spared him, how will he not also in him graciously and freely give us everything? And so in the midst of our adversities, we recall God's works and God's ways. Fourth, we petition God for help. As you pursue the psalm into verses 7 through 10 here, we find a series of petitions that are made to God. And this may sound like a spiritual platitude to many of you. However, here's the thing, and anyone who's lived through any adversity understands and and knows that this is the way it works, is that in the midst of adverse circumstances, that we don't immediately always turn to God that really we tend to have one of two responses. And the first is that we can activate. That is, we can activate and turn to our own resources. We can double down on those resources in order to address the crisis that's going on. And some of you are disposed to activate. And then others of you will just be disposed to slump. That is, to slump into passivity 
and despair in order to simply cope with the moment. But this is the way that adversity can strike us. And we need to learn something here in these verses, in verses 7 through 10, about how to be tempered and how both responses are wrong. In verse 7, we see the proper response. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. David asked God to come to his aid quickly. He asked for deliverance. He asked that God would not hide his face, but rather show his favor. And friends, this is where an adversary, an enemy, can actually become a friend. Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 143, speaks of adversity becoming a chariot. And he says, adversity becomes a chariot that when used correctly, in that chariot you can ascend up to communion with God. Heights of communion that otherwise would not be known. And friends, this is what desperation and this is what need is to create. Is that it is to become a chariot in which we ascend, in which we arise to God and so often it can drive us the other way. We can double down in our own strength or we can just simply slump into passivity. But in the midst of that adversity, we're to take that simple step of calling on God, asking him to come quickly to our aid, allowing our need and our desperation to induce us to go to him. And in verse 8 begins a series of petitions. There's three focuses of these prayers. First, if you look at the first half of verse 8, we're to ask for spiritual renewal. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. He's asking God to come quickly to his aid, and this is the first thing that he requests. With the morning, let me know of your steadfast love. The knowledge of God's commitment to us in Jesus. This is what we're crying out for. God, remind me. Take me into the depths. Take me into the heights. Take me into the width. Take me into the breadth of what it is to be loved by you in Jesus. Remind me of that in the morning. And friends, understanding all of our own weaknesses, our fickleness, our failures, our unfaithfulness, the distress that trouble can bring to heart and soul, we have to hear and be reminded to ask for God to renew us day after day, especially in the midst of adversity, to know God's commitment to us in Jesus. Second, in verse 9, you'll see that he also requests deliverance from jeopardy. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. It's just straight up the request that he would be delivered, rescued, and redeemed from his adversary. And this is appropriate. Asking God to protect. Asking God to be a shield about us. Asking God to deliver us from jeopardy. And third, in the second half of verse 8 and then repeated twice in verse 10, we see that David asks for direction. And this is what we are to ask for. 
Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And friends, if this psalm begins with preoccupation with trouble, it then turns to focus on finding and following God's direction in the midst of crisis. The focus turns from the difficulty and the source of the difficulty, and it turns to wanting to listen and to hear from God. And this is the proper turn. And this is what is to shape our own petitions in the midst of difficult circumstances and trying situations that we call on God, asking him to renew us, asking him to deliver us, and asking him to direct us. And finally, as we close the psalm in verse 11 and 12, we see that in the midst of adversity, we're also to recognize the high privilege that we have. As you read the final verses, you will note a striking confidence. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant." This profession David makes at the end of the psalm. You will protect me because I am your servant. For many it feels overly confident and to have a tinge of self-righteousness. But it's important for us to recognize that David's not exerting himself on God when he says, I am your servant. When he professes that he is the servant of God, he's not saying that he brings anything to qualify himself. He doesn't have accolades and achievements by which he can force himself on God. No, the servant was one who has been served and brought into relationship with God. Earlier in the psalm, we see that he professes that you are my God. And these are simply the terms of the covenant that God comes to us, that he condescends, that he intersects our lives, that he brings us out of the house of slavery and out of the house of bondage, that he becomes our God through Jesus. And he makes us his servants because we've been served by Jesus himself. And so we confess that we belong to him because he has made us his own. He has drawn us into his family. He's forgiven us of our sins. He has adopted us. We are now his servants. And the great privilege that we have is because the true son has brought us into the father's family. And the son who by nature and by right has communion with the father, we are invited to bring our prayers to the father in and through him. This is your privilege. It's your privilege in all the circumstances of life. And it's your privilege in the midst of adversity and trouble. And friends, this is why Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father. That he puts these words upon our lips and he grants us freedom of access 
because this is his work on our behalf to know that we're heard. And so in the midst of all the troubled circumstances of life, all the adversity that can happen, all the adversaries, all the enemies, this is how God would direct us to deal with it. Not taking matters into our own hands, not slumping over passively, simply moving into depression, but rather actively acknowledging our need for mercy, naming our troubles before God, turning to him and calling upon his name, asking for him to guide us and direct us, asking for him to deliver us from our jeopardy, asking him to renew us day after day. Because, friends, this is the great privilege of the sons and the daughters of God. Because in our world, Jesus promises there will be trouble. He doesn't promise to free us from that. But what he does promise is that he is with us and he is for us. And he brings us through those deep waters. And so follow him and follow the way of prayer that God leads us into. Let's ask for his help. Father, we acknowledge the brokenness of our world and the brokenness that lives inside of us as well. And especially when we enter into harsh circumstances, difficulty and trial where there's enemies and adversaries. But you are a shield about us. You are our protector. You are our defender. You are the one who lifts our head. And so teach us your way. Teach us what it means to call upon you, to look to you and you alone for deliverance. Guide us in the path and remind us of the great privilege we have of calling on you in every season of life and knowing that we're heard because we come in and through the true son, Jesus, who's given himself on our behalf. We pray in his name. Amen.